1: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mostly Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, I'm chatting with Nick Sharma. He's author of Season, Big Flavors, Beautiful Food. We discuss how to change your cooking by thinking about combining spices and flavors from an Indian perspective.
3: In America, meat is sold tenderized, and in India, it's not. So, a lot of those marinades were developed to permeate those cuts of meat. So, it really depends on where you are in the world with marinades. Also coming up, we
2: share a tip for whipping egg whites. Adam Gopnik and I discuss the world of DNA diets. And right now, it's my interview with Jenny Mitchell and Stéphane Ainault, authors of A Bite-Sized History of France. Jenny and Stéphane, how
4: are you? We're great. How are you?
2: Very good. Thank you very much. We have something in common. I love history, and obviously, you guys love history. But let's just start at the beginning, or at least the first most interesting thing I found Uh, the virgin of the kidney. What's the virgin of the kidney? (laughs) Okay. Well,
5: actually, that's a very interesting one. It's in the town called uh, Limoges, and it's uh, the uh, southwest of France. And the virgin of the kidney is in this chapel, which used to be the chapel for butchers. And uh, there you have this uh, infant Jesus who's eating a kidney.
4: (laughs) And the reason that they have the Virgin Mary with an infant Jesus eating a kidney is because in the old days, in the medieval era, locally, they used to give kidneys to babies and small children as a way for them to get iron. And so when they built this chapel, it was just very natural for them to depict their baby Jesus doing the same thing. And it's just a reflection of how important the butchers and the whole meat industry were and still are in Limoges. And it's something that we still see and can enjoy now hundreds of years later.
2: So salt obviously was, uh, for thousands of years, has almost been a currency, right, a commodity. There was a salt tax, but there was not a salt tax in Brittany. And so there was a huge amount of black market trading. So just explain how that worked.
5: Yes. So there used to be this tax in France called Gabel. And it was uh, basically a tax on salt. And it was not just that people were taxed on salt. They were also obliged to buy a certain amount of salt. And Brittany was actually exempt from the tax uh, because of historical reasons. Brittany was always very independent from the Kingdom of France. And so uh, salt in Brittany was worth like usually, yes, 10 times as low as salt outside of Brittany. And then they could actually carry it to the other parts of France and sell it for a much higher price, which was obviously illegal. And it all ended with the French Revolution, which uh, abolished uh, the Gabel, this uh, salt tax. And it then created a huge amount of problems because uh, it was a big industry, basically, in Brittany and on the other side of the border. And a lot of people then had no more, well, couldn't do their smuggling uh, salt business anymore. And uh, a lot of them ended up then actually fighting against the revolutionaries. So,
2: So the French Revolution was all about salt? No.
4: (laughs) Although I think part of the argument in our book is that if you want to understand the French Revolution, you need to understand things like the role of the salt tax, which obviously uh, impoverished a lot of people and led to some peasant rebellions over the years. And more importantly, you need to understand the importance of bread in the French diet. And in the year leading up to the French Revolution, uh, there was a very bad harvest and the price of bread doubled. And this was actually a big driver of popular resentment that helped fuel the French Revolution.
2: So uh, prior to the French Revolution, there were restaurants. They tended to be a common table. It would almost be considered, you know, uh, locavore cooking, very simple, rustic food. But there were restaurants This whole notion of that after the revolution, the the chefs for the nobility ended up starting restaurants is true. But there was a history of restaurants uh, in Paris prior to the revolution, right?
4: There was. But as you say, it was a very different phenomenon. Uh, Before the revolution, all the different food industries in France were governed by guilds. The guilds were these medieval creations. They were these associations that governed how food could be sold and produced. But they lingered for a very long time, and they were still in place at the time of the revolution. So, for example, you couldn't just go to one place and get all sorts of different meat. You went to a different place depending on whether you wanted a meat stew or you wanted some cured meats or you wanted some raw meat. Um, Things like wine, uh, you know... Bars could sell wine, but they couldn't sell food. There were very strict rules saying who could sell what. And in the years leading up to the revolution, you had the emergence of restaurants. They had individual tables instead of common tables, and they had waiters, and they were seen as being very nice, elegant places. And technically, they were only supposed to sell these restorative bullions, which were not the same as stews, so it was okay. And that was all they were supposed to sell. But of course, in the years leading up to the revolution, the rules were getting bent, all these different, you know, boundaries between different food trades were starting to fall apart, but it's still in a very limited way. And so the reason the French Revolution is seen as being such a having such a huge impact on the development of the restaurant is that the new revolutionary regime abolished the guilds and abolished all these rules that meant you couldn't sell things or you could only sell certain things. And this was just an enormous opening for restaurants to now serve whatever they wanted. Um, Let's talk about cheese for a moment. I I didn't realize this. Uh,
2: I mean, I know that in France, there are lots of rules and regulations about foods and where they come from and how they're made. But you said in 1925, there were controls put in place for Roquefort, which also included the breed of sheep and where they can graze in order to be classified. Is that still true today, that those rules are still in place?
5: Yes, that is that is still true. You get this uh, concept of AOC in French, so Appellation d'Origine contrôle it, uh, it basically means that a specific product can only be made in a specific area using specific methods. For cheese, what it all very regularly means is that they can only use one or two types of breed of uh, cows or sheep. Uh, In the terms of Roquefort, it's only one breed of uh, sheep they can use to make uh, make Roquefort. And it can only be aged in the caves around the town of Roquefort. So there's really only a very small area where they can age actually that particular cheese.
2: Well, and then that leads to the cheese war. As you said, in 2009, in the United States, there was a 300% import tax on Roquefort. It was reversed, but... Why did we impose a 300% tax?
4: Well, that was at a real low point in Franco-American relations during the George Bush era. A lot of it was the fallout from the Iraq War and other things. And the EU had imposed a ban on hormone-fed beef, I believe. And so one right. of the kind of uh, retributions was to put all these tariffs on different European foods, including Roquefort. And one of the things we talk about in the book is how certain foods seem to become really symbolic of countries, of France and the United States. And so, for example, uh Roquefort, for some reason, seems to really come in for a lot of attacks uh, in the United States. It seems to somehow symbolize France to a great degree, whereas uh, from a French point of view, they tend to try to limit things like Coca-Cola and McDonald's, and it's just interesting that there are these certain items that seem to become symbolic of an entire country and can be used to kind of demonize an entire country.
2: Jenny and Stéphane, thank you so much. Uh, bite-sized history of France. Uh I, I loved it, and uh, n- now, now I will approach food history with a lot more skepticism. Thank you.
4: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
2: Thank you very much. That was Jenny Mitchell and Stéphane Hinault, authors of A Bite-Sized History of France, Gastronomic Tales of Revolution, War, and Enlightenment. Mill Street Radio is available anytime, anywhere as a podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, it's time to open up the phone lines. Are you prepared? You know I am always prepared.
6: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Teresa. Yes. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Eastern Washington, Endicott. Okay, and how can we help you today? Well, I've
7: recently started making some sorbets. Um, I'm dealing with some allergies that I have to avoid being dairy, soy, and uh, corn.
6: Ooh, um, bummer. Yeah,
7: right. So I'd like to cut back on the amount of sugar that's used in the sorbet. It's a little bit sweet for our taste. So I'm wondering if I can do that without it affecting the consistency of the sorbet.
2: One word, vodka. No, I'm serious. Oh. Or gin, but I mean... <laughs> alcohol. Yeah, yeah alcohol. Okay. You can cut the sugar at alcohol. It'll be smooth.
7: There's some religious reasons oh. not to use the vodka. Okay.
2: No corn syrup, no alcohol. Right. Those are my right secrets.
6: Yeah, it's a bit of a problem just because you don't get the right texture if you don't have the right amount of sugar. That's what I was thinking. Yeah,
2: you're right, though sorbets are achingly sweet. It's like old jam recipes that were just so high in sugar. But sugar is hygroscopic; it, it attracts water, which means that it's going to get a, a much finer crystal.
7: Yeah, yeah, I thought it might have something to do with uh, the crystallization of the. Of you know the dessert.
6: You know what's absolutely delicious frozen, and you don't have to do anything to it. Is a banana because <laughs> they taste like <laughs> banana ice cream without anything added to them. They're delicious. Yeah. You know, I agree with Chris about the alcohol thing because you know alcohol keeps things softer. They don't freeze hard with the alcohol in it.
7: So, what amounts would I use for myself? I don't mind. I I use the vodka in the pie dough recipes that I I make. So, if I wanted to do that, how much vodka would I use, and how much less sugar
6: could I use? Well, I think the general ratio with sorbets is like four cups of fruit puree to one cup of sugar. So, Chris, how much vodka would you add to that?
2: Take out. Quarter cup of sugar and add two tablespoons, I think, of vodka. Just ballpark, yeah. something like that. Give that a shot. Okay. That will work. Yeah. You might have to play with the numbers, but that should yeah. work.
7: Yeah, I made a pumpkin sorbet and I made an
2: um, orange sorbet that
7: called for orange juice.
2: And it was just too sweet?
7: Well, it was okay. for When I tasted it, immediately after using my kitchen egg, you know, before I stuck it in the freezer again. It tasted very sweet, and it did tone down once it, was, it right. was colder.
6: when things are frozen, they taste less sweet.
2: The other thing to do to have a complete cheat is make a granita, which is chunky, uh-huh. icy, frozen fruit. <laughs> but <laughs> Just nowhere going, near as well, good. Well, okay, but at least you don't have to worry about it. I mean, yeah. that would work fine. But I, I would try two tablespoons and cut the sugar by a quarter cup and see what happens. That might work. Okay. Take care. we Will do. Thanks. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
7: Hi. My name is Jonathan Kessler from Stoneham, Mass.
2: How can we help you?
7: So my question was, um, I've been making a butternut squash risotto mm-hmm. for a while, and I made it for friends of mine, and I realized after the fact, one of them's a vegetarian, and I made it with chicken stock, and obviously he couldn't eat it. And everyone at the party said, you know, you could make it with vegetable stock, and it just probably wouldn't be as good, but you could do that. And I was wondering if you guys had any tips on how to make it with vegetable stock and still have it be as delicious as what I've made in the past is.
2: Well, I mean, you can make a vegetable stock, but you need like 30 ingredients in two hours. It's very, very hard to do. And the stuff you buy in the store, in my experience... It's borderline edible, right? It has it's nothing like vegetable stock. I don't stock. like the vegetable stock it's from terrible. the store,
6: but I do have a good homemade vegetable stock. Okay. It isn't a million ingredients.
2: Oh really? No. So what do you do with like tomato paste or something?
6: Well, tomato paste of course, of course. and mushrooms because
2: yeah. those are umami, umami. bombs.
6: But the, other than that, I mean the usual suspects, onions, carrots, garlic, parsnips and, you know, you brown them up. And then you throw them in a pot and add some potatoes and parsley stems and thyme and and also the tomato paste and the mushrooms and just simmer it for a while. But roasting it gives it a depth of flavor, particularly the onions and the garlic and the carrots
2: and the parsnips. I would...
6: (laughs) Never do that.
2: Well, first of all, I would never do that. Secondly, I would simply use water and wine instead of making your own vegetable stock. And I've made butternut squash risotto. It has a lot of flavor in it. Yeah. So I would think you could get away without using vegetable stock i think in this particular case you probably could you can i get agree. away with it that's what i would do i, I would agree. use water i wouldn't use that and you finish nonsense. it with
6: freshly grated Parmesan parmigiano yeah. no one's gonna
2: know do you sure. do that yeah and white wine of course yeah
6: white I, wine shallots yeah.
2: shallots would be excellent shallots. Yes. For which excellent. white wine do you use when you make it
6: just a dry white i, I like any Anything.
2: sauvignon blanc is, is medium it's, it's not too sweet it's not too yeah. stony I agree. And and the other point, which I always make, is water instead of stock is actually works in lots of recipes. And you can actually taste. In this case, it would be great because you could taste the butternut squash, Yeah, Mm -hmm. which is what you want to taste. And I don't think the chicken stock is actually helping you. Let me ask you a question. How do you cook your butternut squash?
7: I cube it down to small pieces, olive oil, salt, pepper, and put it in the oven. Until, oh. you know, it starts to brown. And
2: then you it know, gets you, nice and creamy in the risotto.
7: I just mash it down with a potato masher so that I get, like, uh, some chunks, but yeah. mostly just, like, the mashed texture. Oh, I chunks
6: think you could, should keep doing what you're doing.
2: Yeah, that I sounds, think, sounds very good. Yeah, just good. use water. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, give it a shot, and I think you'll love it. Yeah. All, right. All right.
7: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your help.
2: I really yes. appreciate yeah. it. Thanks, Thanks. Awesome.
6: for calling, Jonathan. Thanks. Right. Bye. Take care.
2: Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a question about instant pot dinners or slow cooker suppers, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
6: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Brad from Washington, D.C. Hi, Brad. How can we help you today? Oh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So my question
8: is about Don noodles. My wife and I went on our honeymoon to Japan, southern China, and Hong Kong, mm. which was just great. And we ate our faces off everywhere we went. And all those places, we had a dish called Dandan noodles. Mm-hmm. And it was always great and always delicious, but it was different everywhere we went. And I'd like to try to recreate the version that we had in Hong Kong specifically. It had a creamy, rich broth and it was topped with brisket. It was really just great. And I was um, wondering if you had any ideas about how to make a different version of Dondon noodles.
6: Well, let's just pause for half a second and talk about what somebody might think Dondon noodles is. The Sichuan version is, correct me if I'm wrong, boiled noodles with a sort of sticky, pungent red oil and ground pork and Sometimes there's preserved vegetables, sometimes peanuts or something uh, crispy on top. Does that sound about right? Peanut butter. Yeah, that sounds
8: exactly exactly right. Well, peanut butter would
6: make the creamy sauce. When you had this one at this restaurant, you said it did not involve pork. You said it was beef.
8: Brisket. It was brisket, yeah.
6: And it had been uh, braised? I
8: think so, yeah. It was super soft and delicious and kind of melted into the sauce.
2: It just sounds like they put together two different recipes. A couple recipes. different recipes. I mean, there is the beef noodle soup. There's also one in Taiwan as well, and one in China. It's a very famous recipe. My guess is it's a take on a beef noodle soup using brisket, and they married that to Dondon noodles, right? So That's, that's what it sounds and like.
6: And sometimes Dondon noodles have a really sort of creamy peanut sesame yes. yeah, sauce. Yeah, that sounds right. I
8: like the idea of putting in peanut butter. I haven't thought about that. Well, that sounds like I that could get the creaminess.
2: That's typical.
6: Was the beef element a little bit anisey? Licorice? That's a
8: great question. That's probably right. I yeah. can't remember exactly. Star anise, because that would be done. Well, Sarah, I, you're a
6: superstar. I think that would be it. Is it sounds like it's
2: two yeah. different recipes put together. put together. Yeah.
8: So I would try to combine the beef
2: one with a more peanut butter. Yeah. One did you actually have beef on. noodle soup when you were there as a separate thing?
6: Yes. So that's what I would do: is look for the traditional beef brisket recipe, you know, sort of soup version and um braise the beef with all the usual suspects which includes the star anise and yeah, then the, the,
2: the problem is that recipe is made with beef fat suet which they melt in a wok and then they sauté the aromatics they use beef bones to make stock the traditional recipes not something you'll be making at home you have to make sort of a Americanized version of it, yeah. which we did actually Milk Street a year ago. But but that's a great recipe.
6: And then find a pretty traditional peanut sesame sauce and then cook up your noodles. And Well, I have a better suggestion, yes.
2: which is, you know, a lot of places in the world, they use pressure cookers all the time. So when they want to take a tough cut of meat like brisket, they just throw it in the pressure cooker, cook it. And when it's done, then they flavor it. Afterwards, yeah, like carnitas, they just take the pork, put it in pressure cooker, they take it off, and they finish it in a skillet with a sauce. So you could just cook brisket in a pressure cooker and take it out and make a no don don recipe. No nothing. They start with unseasoned cooked meat, and then they season it and finish it in a sauce Got afterwards, it. very oh, quickly. Very so you could do intuitive. that here and just add the brisket to the don don noodle recipe. Well, uh, that all sounds great. Well, your trip sounds better.
6: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Actually. (laughs) Good luck. Um, I hope you manage to come up with
2: something similar.
8: Well, whether it's similar or not, I'm sure it'll be delicious. These are some great ideas. Thanks very
2: much. Take care, Brad. Bye. 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 Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
8: Hi, this is Lauren Utter.
2: And where are you calling from?
8: I'm calling from Anagadish, Nova Scotia, Canada. Oh, nice.
2: How can we help you?
8: Well, I have no bakery in my town, so I've started making my own bread. I've been using a sourdough starter because I'm kind of nerdy about that thing. And I have had great results, but every time I make it, the bottom burns.
6: What are you baking it on? Just like a cookie sheet. What color's the cookie sheet? It's old. (laughs) I would say it's quite, quite black.
2: Well, there's one thing you can do. You know, no need bread is cooked in a Dutch oven, six-quart. And in baking that, you don't have to worry about the steam because it's a moist environment. And with a cast-iron Dutch oven, you don't have to worry about the top knob, which in some of the Le Creuset, you have to worry about high oven temperatures. In any case, that might solve your problem because it gives you better bread, better crust, and you wouldn't probably have to worry about the bottom overcooking before the rest is done.
6: Can I ask a question, though, when you're talking about mm-hmm. this cast iron? You're talking about an unlined. You're talking about a black cast iron? Just, just
2: a regular Lodge six-quart cast iron. And the black
6: iron. won't affect no. the crust? No. Not at all. Are you familiar with the Jim Leahy recipe, Lauren? No, I'm not. He was the one who was published in the New York Times, the no Need method that um, Mark oh, Bittman yeah, yeah. made famous. And the way it worked is, yeah, he cooked it in a Le Creuset, which is the larger, more expensive, lined cast iron. Chris is suggesting that you do it the same method. Yeah, I would go and Google it and find the article by Mark Bittman about Jim Leahy about the no Need bread so that you know what the procedure is. I'm interested, yeah. Chris, because that's a black pan that it's well, not going to... Yeah,
2: but if you season cast iron properly, it doesn't matter. And also the heat from the top and the sides, you're going to get a radiant heat from the cast iron Dutch oven. Mm-hmm. So everything's going to cook, cook at, at the same, same time. rate, as opposed to in the oven where you have convection heat on the rest of the bread, except the bottom is conductive. Right. So I think you'd end up with a more consistently baked yeah. loaf, but it's worth trying.
6: Yeah. And then you have the steamy environment because you right. put the lid on. I've yeah. done
2: water. I've done throw ice cubes in the oven. And those things don't really work. No, They're not sorry. very good for your oven either, by the way. I tried yeah. that one. That
6: so, so yeah, this watch makes a what size is it, Chris?
2: Oh, you can get anything you want, but the standard size is six quart. Okay. And it's 40 bucks.
6: Oh, know. good. All right. Yeah. Well, great. Anyway,
2: give that a shot. Yeah.
6: Well, thank you so much for your help. Yeah. Thanks okay. for calling. Thank you.
2: This is Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with Nick Sharma, author of Season, Big Flavors, Beautiful Food. That's coming up in just a moment.
1: Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago—
2: This is Most Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Nick Sharma left his home in Bombay to study molecular genetics at the University of Cincinnati. A few years later, he gave up his job in pharmaceuticals to follow his culinary dreams. Today, Sharma is the writer, photographer, and recipe developer behind the blog A Brown Table. He recently published his first cookbook, Season. Nick, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm good. You grew up in Mumbai or Bombay. I did, um, yeah. So, where did you live in town? What was it like? Where did you go to shop for food? Just sort of paint the picture for us.
3: Sure. So, um, I grew up in Bombay, which um, is now called Mumbai. I still go with Bombay because that's what it was called when I left. I grew up in a little suburb of Bombay called Bandra, which is right by the water, uh, by the Arabian Sea. And, We grew up in a household, my sister and I, where my mom is Roman Catholic and her family comes from a Portuguese colony, called Goa, and my dad comes from the north, from a conservative Hindu-Brahmin family. So our meals at home were predominantly a mix of both cultures. So you had vegetarian food from the Hindu side of the family, and then you had this coastal, heavily sea-based menu, um, and of course a lot of meat too, from my mom's side of the family. And that's kind of how Bombay is also in its own way. It's a city with people from all over the country and also from all over the world. You've had these influences from different cultures that came in, like the Parsis that came from Iran. Uh, You've got the Mughal Empire, the British, the Portuguese, the French. And so you have all these cultures blending in. And so the food is quite diverse in Bombay. Um, And then when it came to buying ingredients and stuff like that, we would go out and shop either at little stores. We had no supermarkets back then when I lived there. And of course, they're popping up now with globalization. But it was pretty much you'd walk outside your house, you'd walk maybe like for a minute or two, and you'd have people selling fresh vegetables and fruits on their carts. Uh, My parents would buy seafood like fish and crabs from their local fisherwoman who would either come to the house or there was a portion of like about a minute away from that place. There's a a little side of a building where women sit outside with um, seafood that they sell fresh. And then for meat, my parents would go to the meat market. Um, So it was kind of interesting just to see all these things just happening fresh.
2: So in Goa, Mm -hmm. obviously, southwest India your mother's from there, that food is very different than what your father experienced in the northern part of the country. So just give us a quick primer on Goan food.
3: Yeah, so Goan food is um, the child of basically the Portuguese living in Goa, which is on the west coast. And as a result of the state being on the west coast, you have a lot of coconut trees. You, obviously, the people are eating seafood in plenty. And then other things that the Portuguese brought were ingredients like vinegar, uh, which became a very important part of the diet. So you have vinegar being used to cure their sausage, which is called chorizo, which is a form of chorizo, which we well know uh, you're in South American and Central American cooking. And then we've got vinegar being used to create curries like sorpatel and vindaloo. In fact, you won't eat those curries the day you make it. you st- have to wait for a week for the flavors to kind of mellow. Yeah. Um, And my aunt was visiting from New Zealand recently and taught me how to make vindaloo. Uh, We did a pork vindaloo dish. And she said, don't eat it the day you make it. Wait, leave it in a glass bowl, cover it and open it after a week. And I didn't listen. I tasted it every day. But the flavors do get much more mellow and much more pleasant after seven days.
2: And then the the northern part of the country is more, I, I gather, what was exported to the United States, a lot of res- chefs and restaurateurs came from northern India, so that would Correct. be maybe more familiar to an American audience?
3: Yeah, so my dad's family is from the middle central part of North India, um, and the food that they grew up was predominantly vegetarian. Um, they ate eggs a little bit, not too much from what I remember. Dairy was a large part, so yogurt, plain yogurt is a big condiment that's always served at the side with the dish, so you Probably a lot of raita, which is served in restaurants. That's a dish that you'll see there. Uh, dal, which is uh, made with lentils. And then a lot of vegetable stir fries and um, the common seasonings like garam masala. Those are the things I think with most of the West is familiar with.
2: So ghee, obviously, is a staple. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a way of preserving butter, I guess, in one, one aspect. So when you came here, did you give up using that and just use olive oil or some other fat or regular butter?
3: Sure. So when I came here, I was still in college, so I wasn't really looking to cook a lot. <laughs> um, and I did use olive oil quite a bit and canola. I didn't use start to use ghee as much till I started to make it at home because it was also so expensive in stores.
2: And so now that's part of your, your repertoire, ghee.
3: Okay. Yeah. So now I do like a... Ritually, like once every month or two, I'll sit down, make a pot of ghee and then bottle it up and keep it uh, in storage. And, and so ha- how do you make ghee? So typically you would start with the cream that you skim off non-homogenized milk. But what I do here is a shortcut. I start with sticks of butter, unsalted butter, and I slowly melt it on the stove and start skimming the milk solids that come off. Um, and then I wait for the like, all the water to evaporate. So once that crackling noise has stopped... I remove the liquid from the stove and then filter it and store it in bottles. So,
2: um, your book's really interesting. Season, um, and you also did you, you do you still do your blog? A brown table is that correct? I do, yeah. yeah. And so your your cooking's there's some simplicity to it, but it's also really interesting. So, grilled dates and raisins with black pepper and honey—that's one of the first recipes in the book. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, tell us about that. So. When we were kids, obviously in India we don't—I we, didn't grow up with the grill. I'm sure families do, but uh, what my dad would do, he would take skewers and put raisins and dates, more so raisins, because we get—we would get a lot of raisins um, that were grown in uh, close by, and so he would take raisins brush them with a little oil and then stick them directly into a flame on our gas stove and then season them with a little bit of black pepper and salt. And that was one of the most simplest things because all you're doing is you're playing with the sugar that's inside the fruit. Mm -hmm. Um, It's already been concentrated. And then the fire kind of burns it a little bit. So you have that caramelization. It also creates a thin crust on the skin, which gets crackly. Um, And then when you add black pepper to it, black pepper and salt kind of intensifies the heat from the warmed fruit already. And it's just such a beautiful play on temperature, like the physical sense of temperature that we perceive, like hot and cold, but then also with flavor, with pepper bringing that heat on your tongue.
2: So what is your basic recipe for garam masala, your own spice mix?
3: So it's in the book, and basically I use the five spices. uh, I don't add salt. That's one thing that I never do in a seasoning mix, regardless, because I like to be in control. But I usually use um, the cardamom, the cinnamon, the cloves and nutmegs that go in it, just to build on those layers of warmth and coolness. And that essentially is what garam masala is. Garam means hot. And then I've also had people who add a few more things in it. I've actually seen someone add star anise once, which actually builds a really interesting aroma to it. Um, but again, these are like seasonings that you can play at home in your own ratios and make it your own.
2: So you studied biochemistry. I did. Okay, this is the key science question I like to ask people. Mm-hmm. Do you think marinades actually
3: work? They do. So there is a difference. <laughs> okay, there is a now different. we're
2: going to have a fight. So you tell me why they do.
3: <laughs> okay, so I think the thing is, in America, meat is so tenderized. And in India, it's not. In India, if you look also a lot of the recipes historically, um, especially for poultry, a lot of communities in India, not all, but a lot of them do not use the skin because it was considered unclean. And because of the, um, you know, depending on what economic, um, socioeconomic status you came from from the community, you would eat skin or not eat skin. A lot of those marinades were developed to then permeate or add flavor to those cuts of meat because they weren't that good in many cases. And so there were also techniques done like like in, if you've noticed on tandoori chicken, they make deep cuts about like an inch gash into the meat. That's for the marinade to kind of settle in there. So when you cut, when you eat it, you've got the meat. Right flavored um in the west it's a little different you can't really keep your marinades that long especially with beef because once a lot of uh, marinades are also highly acidic and as the proteins sit with the acid they'll start to denature and sometimes the meat gets a very weird crumbly texture if it's Mm -hmm. marinated for too long um so it really depends on where you are in the world with marinades
2: um I think one thing people don't know much about here are chutneys uh, because of all the horrible commercial chutneys that the British came up Mm -hmm. with, which had nothing to do with real chutneys. What Mm -hmm. what is a real chutney? How do you make a chutney? What's a recipe you like?
3: So to me, a chutney is basically a condimental liquidish sauce. To be specific, you've got the sweet ones made with tamarind that I think most people are familiar with in restaurants. When you get an order of samosas, they'll give you the sweet tamarind or date chutney. And then uh, there's a green chutney, which is usually made with cilantro and uh, chili peppers. Um, I like chutney from the standpoint that it'll serve as a condiment, but I can also use it in a bunch of different ways, not only just to dip something in like a crudité or a kebab, but also something that I could actually just use over roast vegetables, as you would like a compound butter, if you will. And so I usually lean towards more herby chutneys where, uh, like in the book, I did a recipe for kale and arugula, which arugula is an herb um, at the end of the day. and, And I know we use it a lot in salads, but I was always faced with like a cup or a half cup of kale or arugula from my salads that I didn't know what to do. So I said, let me see if I can make this into a chutney. And it works really well. I think that's, to me, what a chutney is, something that I can use as a dipping sauce as well as, you know, just to season my food every day.
2: How much is the caste system or your socioeconomic level in society affect your cooking? Is it totally different from uh, a wealthy family to a poor family or do people eat pretty much the same food?
3: It does. Um, In India, the wealth gap is really huge. So you're either really rich or really poor. You know, we were talking earlier about the marinades and the skin of poultry. Um, That was something that was based essentially in the caste system. If you were of a lower caste, you would be eating meat with the skin on it. Hmm. The higher Brahmin caste would not. There are things like um, asafoetida, um, which is, it's used as a substitute for onion and garlic flavor in cooking. When you add it to hot oil, the flavor is transformed and it builds on those um, alium-like flavors. And my dad's mother, when my grandfather passed away, she had to give up eating onions and garlic because it was considered an aphrodisiac and would induce impure thoughts in the mind. And so she voluntarily gave that up, which is a very sad thing. But... She used No, no, asafoetida. no, wait, 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 wait.
2: wait I got to stop you. What, yeah. what year is this, roughly speaking?
3: It still happens today. Um, huh. What's done is that when your husband passes away, you become a widow. And to avoid impure thoughts, because onions and garlic are considered heating, so it's considered an aphrodisiac in a way, you'll have impure thoughts. So you have to give that up. And then they would use asafoetida huh. to create those flavors in those dishes. So... When I was a kid, I was very confused by it. And I asked my dad to explain. He said to me, he said, so I've talked to my mom and that it doesn't really make a difference. She should do what she wants, but she won't listen because the culture is embedded in her head. And she would cook food for other people with onions and garlic. But what she made for herself when no one was around had no onions and garlic. So it was always asafoetida.
2: So it's so interesting that onions, I mean... Were it that easy to have impure thoughts from onions? I mean, you think right. like a hot spice or something. I get that, but onions? Rolling yeah, onions? Um, okay, you meet me at a bar. We're having a beer, mm-hmm. and I only got five minutes. And, you, and I say to you, look, tell me three things about how you think about cooking, what you learned about cooking uh, when you grew up that would be different. A, a different way of thinking. In other words, give me three tips or techniques or ideas that you brought with you they would change how I cook? What, what would those three things be?
3: Let's see. Uh, the first thing would be the use of heat. Consider heat or actually temperature in general in terms of spices because that influences how you cook. Um, okay. In India, we have the concept of warm spices and cool spices. It's not just a random combination of ingredients thrown together, and that actually really helps to improve flavors when you cook food. The second thing I would tell you is um, know the difference between green cardamom and black cardamom. Um, <laughs> and I always stress <laughs> upon this because they're such different a big difference flavors and, <laughs> and they look different too. Uh, so I always try to tell people about that. And the third thing I tell people is never buy curry leaves that are dried. Just buy them huh. fresh huh. Uh, because you can't replicate that taste. It just doesn't. There is no flavor when it's dried. Um Fresh is the best.
2: And would fresh curry leaves be that one ingredient that that um, it's hard to find here that you really think is critical, or would it be something else?
3: It's There's no substitute for it. That's the first thing. And the second thing, it's not that hard to find. Uh, one of the things I tell people when they're looking for a spice from any cuisine, be it Indian or any other country— If you have a restaurant that's close by, go to them and ask them where they get it from. Most often, they'll just give you some because it's going to be such a tiny quantity, or they'll point you to their source. Hmm.
2: So, Nick, thank you. Uh, Best of luck with your new book, Season. Uh, And it's been a pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Chris. That was Nick Sharma. His book is called Season: Big Flavors, Beautiful Food. You know, when the British imported the cooking of their far-flung empire, they often got it wrong. Major Gray's mango chutney is a sticky, sweet condiment, not at all like true Indian chutneys that are often as savory as cilantro and chilies. But let's be honest, all cultures are strange to foreigners, especially the food. But let's make sure that the recipes don't get lost in translation. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen in Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe— Maple Whiskey Pudding Cake. Catherine, how are you?
9: I'm good, Chris. How are you?
2: You know, back in the early 1970s, Marion Cunningham, she was a famous cookbook author, used to work with Jim Beard, uh, redid the Fannie Farmer books. And one of the recipes I love from that book are pudding cakes. These an old-fashioned recipe. They're magic. You take a cake batter and you take a very thin sauce. You put the cake batter in your container, ramekin, whatever. Pour this thin sauce on top, which looks like it's never going to work. Throw it in the oven. It comes out. The sauce has dropped to the bottom of the ramekin. The cake batter has risen to the top, so you have cake on the top, and at the bottom you have a sauce which is now thick. So it changed places and it also thickens, so you get a cake with sauce in the same ramekin or souffle dish. So it's a little magic, and so this is a maple whiskey pudding cake, which is, I think, a lot more interesting than the standard lemon or chocolate. So how do we get started?
9: First of all, this cake eats like a warm hug. They were making it in the kitchen the other day, and I stole an entire whiskey cake that I was supposed to just have one bite of. So just a little confessional to start off. And yes, Chris, it is very impressive, and it's a little bit of magic, but it couldn't be more simple. To start, we actually make the sauce That's what you do first. And it really is like a brown butter sauce with whiskey and maple syrup and butter. But we actually add a little bit of apple cider vinegar, and that is a nice trick for kind of balancing out the sweetness and cutting through so it doesn't get too cloying. Then you're gonna whip together the simplest cake batter. You actually do it in a food processor, and it's just your standard all-purpose flour with some leavener and egg, and you do add a little bit of toasted pecan, which adds both texture and flavor. You put the batter in your oiled ramekins and pour over the sauce, and then it goes right into the oven.
2: These are individual servings. You can make it in a bigger dish, but we like to serve them individually.
9: Individual is best, and then you can, of course, hoard one for the cook, either before or after your guests arrive.
2: It sounds like you don't hoard them. It sounds like you just eat one as soon as it comes out. Shameless, Chris. (laughs) Absolutely shameless. So maple whiskey pudding cake, it's a little bit of magic. The sauce starts out on top, ends up at the bottom. You get cake and a sauce, and you get individual servings. Catherine, thank you.
9: Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for maple whiskey pudding cake at 177milkstreet.com.
2: I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik and I explore the world of DNA diets. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit... 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milstreet Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's tip on how to change the way you cook. On a trip to London, I visited the baker Claire Patak, yes, that's the one who did the royal wedding cake, and she shared her number one rule for baking, underwhip your egg whites. The act of whipping egg whites incorporates air bubbles, causing the mixture to stretch too thin, and eventually bursting the bubbles. Now, slightly under-whipping the egg whites, on the other hand, leaves them thick and elastic, so you'll end up with a fluffier mixture. Here's another tip. Stabilizers such as sugar will help the egg whites become more viscous and also more resistant to breaking apart. Be sure to add the sugar slowly so it dissolves into the foam because undissolved sugar weakens the structure. By the way, soft whites will incorporate more easily into the batter than stiff whites. For more culinary tips and ideas, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. Up next, it's time to visit with Adam
1: Gopnik. Adam, how are you? I am very well, Christopher. How are you? Uh,
2: I'm always expectant when I speak to you because I never know what's
1: coming next. (laughs) Tentative to the brink (laughs) of terrified about what crazed abstract notion may come spouting out of my mouth. But actually what comes spouting out of my mouth this time is, if you'll forgive me, my own saliva because I had just been through a DNA test. Now, have you had done your DNA test yet?
2: Uh, No, I've thought about doing it, but I'm not quite convinced it's a good idea.
1: Well, it's, it's very much the uh, 2019 question, have you done your DNA test yet, right? Because right? we all know exactly what's meant when someone asks us that. And my wife and I did it, and we did our DNA test, and we found out who we are, or rather what our background is. I am purely Jewish, Eastern European Jewish. They stamped that on my certificate and sent it back. But what fascinates me about it is I've discovered, and it opened a whole door, onto the world of DNA diets. Have you followed these at all?
2: Uh, no, I, I know nothing nothing about it.
1: Well, there's a whole movement afoot that says that the key question about diet, not diet in the sense of weight reduction, but diet in the broader sense of, of health, the key to your diet is knowing who you are, digging deep into your DNA and finding out what it is you were designed genetically in the distant past of your people to eat. Hmm. And you can have it done, and you can send in your DNA, and you get back from one of these many firms a diet appropriate for you. And, of course, what it puts me in mind of is one of my perpetual themes in our conversations, Christopher, which is how much taste is constructed and reconstructed again and again according to our latest ideas about science, all of which look absurd in retrospect, even if the foods they produced – we can still savor. You know, my favorite example of, of course, if you don't mind a slightly racy moment, is the history of cornflakes. You're well aware, Christopher, of why cornflakes were invented, aren't you?
2: Yeah, it was out at the Institute. Uh, it was a health institute, uh, and it was two brothers, the Kelloggs, and they, it was a health food breakfast, right?
1: Exactly, and Battle Creek. It was, But it was something even more, if you'll forgive me, than health food breakfast. Cornflakes as you probably know were invented to decrease adolescent sexual desire. Oh that's correct, right. Because right. if their jaws were busy working, their nether regions would not be. But that's quite serious. It sounds absurd when we say it, but that's as you know is is absolutely the truth about the invention of breakfast cereal. It was designed uh, in the belief that all of those grains weren't things that would make you licentious. And of course, beyond it as well is the invention of a new technology, many new technologies that allowed you to uh, denature grains to some degree and ship them and keep them from spoiling over long distances and over very long periods of time. And yet, when we look back at it now, the whole thing seems to us not just absurd but obviously to reflect the peculiar values of that time, the panic about sex, the fascination with preservation, and so on. Yet we still have the cornflakes and we still enjoy them. And I think this is very much the same thing is true as going on here about all of the excitement about genetic diets. I have friends I know who are only eating as, you know, paleo diets because that's what their genes say are good. Others are saying that I can't eat sugar, but I can eat honey because my ancestors were honey eaters and so on. And it seems to be perfectly apparent that what's happening there is, once again, we have a new technology. It's not trains and preservation anymore. No, now it's the ability to dig deep into our chromosomes and find out who our ancestors were. And in response to that science, we immediately try to create an imaginary diet, a way of improving ourselves through food in accordance with what we imagine to be its laws. I guarantee you, Christopher, that within... (laughs) <laughs> 20 years' time, certainly within 100 years' time, the we DNA will diet will seem very much like the um, no-sex stimulation diet of the 1890s.
2: So let me understand this. So if you go back hundreds or thousands of years and look at your DNA, does that mean ostensibly that one person would digest certain foods differently than another person? Or is it the intervening years when people and cultures consume certain foods that gives them a different propensity for reacting to foods differently? Is it just pure DNA or is it actual experience?
1: There are certainly things, this science seems to suggest, that are ways that our bodies and ourselves have evolved in order to digest certain kinds of foods. So that's real. You know, there are peoples and there are uh, genetic stocks that are resistant to certain kinds of food and have genetic and um, a hereditary allergies and responses that part of it is real but it's exactly where that intersects a whole culture that it gets a little you should forgive the expression a little fishy it's exactly there that we begin to construct out of those that narrow range of genetic predispositions we begin to construct cultural diets and the idea that the genetic predisposition is perfectly expressed in the cultural diet of the people seems to imply that if you're german You were designed by nature in your genes to eat schnitzel and noodles. That's clearly the extension of it. That's the phony part. That's the pseudo part. The core idea that we may have genetic predispositions to certain kind of food may be sound, but the notion that the culture of our food simply and mechanically reflects those predispositions is certainly false.
2: Yeah, it seems to me the notion of taking a DNA test, and that says something explicitly useful about an individual in the 21st century, is both strange and also potentially dangerous idea, right?
1: (laughs) It's absolutely both of those things. But at any moment when we're pursuing our own peculiar and poetic vision of taste, we always justify it with some new science or technology.
2: And so I just would like to end with a question, which is, are you glad you took the test?
1: I am comically unglad that I took the test because it confirmed (laughs) what anybody who knows me would know, which is I'm very Jewish. It told me absolutely nothing about myself that I did not already know. But aren't those the best kinds of tests we take in life, Christopher? The ones that confirm our expectations rather than upsetting our wishes?
2: I'm not going to take the test because I would like to keep the fantasy about who I think I am.
1: We keep the fantasies of who we think we are by eating the foods we like.
2: (laughs) That's the perfect way to end this. Thank you so much, Adam.
1: Thank you, Christopher.
2: That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. Adam Gopnik points out that DNA studies have led to DNA diets, which are, of course, pretty silly. This follows close on the heels of other diet plans based on blood type or grapefruit or baby food. Or maybe Horace Fletcher's 19th-century chewing diet. Or the Joan Crawford diet, which included coffee and cigarettes. American history is full of easy solutions, including diets, elixirs, and also pyramid schemes. But oddly enough, America was founded on something quite different, which is hard work. So maybe someday we'll marry the two, diet and doing the hard work of eating properly. Perhaps the two are actually made for each other. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. That way you'll get every episode downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. You can find each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch the new season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We're also on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, of course, for listening.
9: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by 2 Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.